if you haven't got the message yet, this, on this third Sunday of Advent, we're focusing our attention on joy. Um, let's pray together one more time. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you for um, the stories that your scriptures share. And help us, God, not to uh, think that we already know um, everything that you want to speak to us. We pray that this morning, God, that you would um, touch our hearts, touch our ears, touch our spirits. Uh, use your word to enrich us, to challenge us, um, to enfold us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in my uh, early young adult years, Calvin Miller published a book called The Taste of Joy. And in it, he says this. He says, millions of Christians are miserable and surprised at their misery. They were promised joy and bliss if they would only receive Christ. Eagerly they did so and were astounded that the life they came to know in Christ was as dyspeptic in many ways as the life they left on the other side of repentance. Somewhere in their initial depression, they felt cheated, for the Christ life was yet filled with hunger and inner struggle. Their disenchantment seemed unbearable. He said, for the first few hours after their conversion, they were indeed happy. Then the warmth cooled and later died. Had they merely created the feeling themselves? Had they just trumped up a mindset that could not endure the stress they had to face? Was Christ anemic or did the problem lie within themselves? Did they need a new retreat into longer prayers or more furious Bible study? And then he said, I began my own walk with Christ, surrounded by such easy and churchy slogans of joy. I felt the presence of Christ from time to time, but all too often I was a peaceless and ulcerated disciple. Christ kept his word, lo, I am with you always. Gradually I came to see that Christ was always there, and yet happiness was not. Happiness, like a fickle friend, flitted in and out of my moody and unpredictable spasms of religiosity. What a set of ups and downs came in with Jesus. Never did happiness leave me, but his ugly alter ego, depression, moved in with leaden boots to keep my feet from any dance. Isn't that a potent phrase? I want to take a pause for just a moment from joy and share a word about this thing that Miller describes as happiness's ugly alter ego, depression. If you've struggled with depression, or if you are today struggling with depression, I really believe with all my heart that God knows and understands. He's not on his throne criticizing you, ridiculing you, scolding you, and I hope you don't hear this message on joy in that way today. If you hear or feel criticism from God, it's more likely coming from within you, from your filters that are off kilter. God is love, and he is full of mercy, kindness, grace, and compassion toward you. He knows your plight and is right there with you in it, seeking to lead you to higher ground. And I'm suggesting with confidence that God knows and understands your depression based on what I see in the Psalms, the songbook of the church. There are various uh, kinds of Psalms among the 150 total Psalms. 
almost 65 of them, around 65 of them, almost half, are psalms of lament. Psalms of lament have a unique structure to them. The writer shares their complaint, their cries, their agony, their despair, their questions. And then the psalm of lament turns and ends with a, an upbeat word, like a reminder of God's faithfulness or his presence or his power. And this is true for every psalm of lament except for one. One psalm, Psalm 88. Go home and read it today. Instead of turning upward at the end, Psalm 88 presents bleakness the whole way through and ends with these words in verses 15 to 18. The psalmist said, From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. And then the last line of the psalm. You have taken my companions from me. The darkness is my closest friend. I remember reading this psalm years ago. And I was shocked at those words. And then I was really ministered to by those words. Darkness is my closest friend. I think it's kind of wild to be ministered to by those words. They might be the saddest words in all of scripture. And they're the words that ministered to my heart. And through them I knew that God knows and understands the depth of our despair. And in his caring for us, he included in his word, which we say we believe is God-breathed, God-inspired, he included the words that darkness is my closest friend. God gets us. He gets our plight when we're struggling. And I'm also suggesting with confidence that God knows and understands based on my own experience 20 years ago of going through a time of depression. For me, it was partly my fault. I didn't take care of myself. I got run down and worn out. And then at the same time, I was processing all sorts of things from my life. And I got depressed. I didn't feel joy. And God felt far away. Well, I don't do a lot of decorating at Christmas. We have a tree, and I decorate it, and sometimes keep it up till Valentine's Day because I hate to undecorate it. Um, don't judge me. Um, but I have a few decorations that I put around my house. And uh, one of them is my, my favorite decoration that I set on my mantle in the living room. And here's a picture of it. Brian's going to put up a picture of my decoration. On this year that I was depressed, when Christmas ended, I decided not to put away my joy decoration. I decided to leave it in the center of my mantle 
where I could see it day after day. My children said, you forgot to put away the Christmas thing. I know I didn't forget to put it away. Jesus was born, and we can celebrate it all year long, was what I said. Day after day for a whole year, I had a visual reminder that helped to carry me through that desolate time. Scripture says that the joy of the Lord is our strength, and I relied on that joy to strengthen me, to strengthen my faith throughout that darker time. The other thing I did that year um, was that I wrote two scriptures that spoke volumes to my heart. I wrote them on a heavy piece of paper, and I folded that paper up, and every day when I got dressed, I put that paper in my pocket. All through the day, I'd have a tangible reminder. Every time I took my keys or pick, took a tissue or whatever, I had this folded paper in my pocket that reminded me of God's truth. And the verses I wrote, I'm not going to um, read them to you. I'm not going to take the time. I'll just give you the references. Jot them down if you want or whatever. The first one's really easy to remember because of the numbers. Psalm 89, 8 and 9. Isn't that great? I love it. Um, Psalm 89, 8 and 9, and Isaiah 42, 2 to 3. Those are the verses I wrote, put them in my pocket, carried them every day. If you're in darkness today, my brothers and sisters, you're not excluded from joy. So, back to Calvin Miller and his book. I think in his book, he helpfully contrasts for us happiness and joy. He wrote, happiness is a buoyant emotion that results from the momentary plateaus of well-being that characterize our lives. Joy, on the other hand, he said, is bedrock stuff. Joy is a confidence that operates irrespective of our moods. Joy is the certainty that all is well, however we feel. Uh, I love the Bible Project. I don't know if you check out any of their videos and their podcasts and all that. I love the Bible Project. They, uh, I sent in the email on Friday that went out a, a link to their, to their video on joy. They see joy as a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Um, I found that interesting to think some about this week. Um, and they say human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. They said it's an attitude of God's that God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. Think for a minute of some of the instances of joy in the scriptures. In the middle of a desert, vulnerable and still far away from the promised land, the first thing Moses and Miriam and the Israelites did when they were led into freedom almost, after almost 400 years of slavery in Egypt was to sing for joy. They could do so because the joy of God's people is not determined by our past or our present struggles, but by our future destiny. And then later, God's people suffered under oppression of foreign empires, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. And in that time, during that suffering, 
They looked forward to a day of being redeemed. Isaiah 51.11, for instance, that was written during the Babylonian exile, says the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. And then the early church that was sent out by Jesus into a world that didn't welcome them, didn't embrace them, but instead questioned them and flogged them and beat them and stoned them, imprisoned them and tortured them. And through it, Acts 5.41 tells us, they left rejoicing. And Romans 15.13 reminds us that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can fill us with all joy and peace. Joy, according to Paul, is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. When we are filled with God's Spirit, we have his joy within us. The early Christians didn't gloss over pain and suffering, but in 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul shares that we can be filled with sorrow and yet always rejoicing. So this morning, we're going to be looking briefly at two different scriptures for the message on joy from the New Testament. We'll be looking at Luke 2, verses 8 to 20, and from the Old Testament, Psalm 98. Luke 2 begins with the details of Joseph and Mary's journey from Nazareth, their small hometown, to Bethlehem, where they were going to register for the census that was being taken for the entire Roman world. And while they were in Bethlehem, their lives became forever changed, and the world became forever changed. Here's how Max Lucado imagines the event of Jesus' birth. He writes, As much as she tried to keep a good attitude, it was not easy. She was far from home. This is talking about Mary, if you didn't catch that. Um, she was far from home, miles from family, and from her own bed. She had spent her last few days on crowded roads, enduring the winter chill. Money was scarce. Friends were nowhere near. A warm bed and a hot meal? The prospects were slim. Ask her which was worse, the pain in her heart or the pain in her back, and she'd be hard-pressed to make a choice. Her, art, her heart ached for her family. She felt estranged from them. Under normal circumstances, they would have been thrilled to learn of her pregnancy. But pregnant before the wedding, with her conservative family and her bizarre explanation, and to have to tell the man she was to marry that she was carrying a child who wasn't his, it was a miracle he still married her. And another miracle was what she needed that night. She envisioned giving birth at home, mom holding one hand, an aunt another, a midwife, doting relatives, Joseph and a crowd of neighbors outside the door. Perhaps if they could all have experienced the birth of her firstborn together, then they would believe her story. At least that's how I imagine Mary felt, is what he said. Of course, I could be wrong, Perhaps the feed trough and stable were her idea, but I don't think so. I've yet to meet a mother-to-be who dreams of using a cow stall for a delivery room and a manger for a bassinet. I doubt Mary did either. So when Joseph returned from the inn and asked if she was allergic to sheep, it's a safe hunch that she was chagrined. 
This wasn't how she had planned to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Joseph led the donkey down a steep path that ended at the mouth of a cave carved out years before by the wind and the rain, used as long as anyone could remember for a barn. He lowered Mary off the back of the donkey. He looked at her face, fatigued and powdery from the road. He apologized for the austere accommodations. Joseph built a fire and heated water. Mary cleared a spot on the straw and set about the task of bringing God into the world of bringing God into the world. With cows as her witnesses and Joseph as her midwife, she did just that. And within moments, the hand of the star hanger clutched Mary's finger. The feet of the skywalker lay in Joseph's palm. No wonder the angels filled the sky with worship. Any doubt of the father's love disappeared the night God was wrapped in barnyard towels so the hay wouldn't scratch his back. While Lucado helps us to imagine what that night might have been like, Luke sim simply tells us that Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then Luke widens his lens and gives us more of the story, starting at verse 8. Brian, you can put that up. Verses 8 to 20, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So, excuse me. <clears throat> Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We can only imagine what that night might have been like for the shepherds who were living out in the fields near Bethlehem, tending their flocks, keeping watch over their sheep through the night, protecting them from the night predators who might have found sheep an easy meal had they not had such care. I like J.B. Phillips' wording of verses 8 and 9 in J.B. Phillips' New Testament translation. He said, there were some shepherds living in the same part of the country, keeping guard throughout the night over their flock in the open fields. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord stood before them. The splendor of the Lord blazed around them, and they were terror-stricken. How afraid might you have been 
if you were caring for your sheep in the dark night in an open field, just as you did night after night after night, and suddenly it was bright as day with an angel of the Lord standing before you. I would have been terror-stricken. I think you would have been too. The Greek words that were used by Luke here literally say that they were feared, that they feared a great fear. The splendor of the Lord blazing around the shepherds has hints of the prophecy in Isaiah 9-2 that's fulfilled in Jesus. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The first announcement from God that his son had been born comes to these shepherds, lowly, simple people who were outcasts. They were despised by the Orthodox Jews because they weren't able to observe all of the details of the ceremonial law with all its meticulous hand washings and rules and regulations. Their work in the fields wouldn't allow it. And it doesn't go unnoticed that this first announcement of the incarnation from God to the lowly shepherds is not unlike the later announcement of Jesus' resurrection coming first to women who were also considered lowly in their culture. In bringing such life-changing announcements to such lowly ones, God shows that his heart, his priorities, his values stand in stark contrast to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The first announcement from God of the birth of the Savior comes to these shepherds, these shepherds who likely were serving as the shepherds in charge of the flocks from which the morning and the evening temple offerings were chosen. The temple authorities in Jerusalem had private sheep, sheep flocks for this purpose. And they were pastured in that area near Bethlehem. And the first invitation of God to see the baby, who would later be called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, may very well have come to the very same shepherds who were in these pastures tending the unblemished lambs that would be offered at the temple as a sacrifice to God to cover the sins of the people. We're told by Luke in verse 10 that the angel, after urging the shepherds not to be afraid, brings them good news of great joy. The story actually begins in Luke 1 with a visit from another angel and the birth of John the Baptist, which Pastor Ryan shared with us um, about last week, as this angel came to Zechariah and said, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he will go before him to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. Even before John was born, the message was a message of joy. The Lord promised that people would rejoice at the birth of John because he would pave the way for the Christ. The joy which God's people would have in Jesus would be so real, so intense, that they would even feel it looking into the face of the messenger, a man set apart to declare the coming of the king. And then this second angel in our passage in Luke 2 came to announce to the shepherds that the baby Jesus was born, that the Messiah himself came from heaven and was laying in a manger. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And after this pronouncement, 
a vast host of the angels of heaven appeared, and praise to God rang out. Michael Card, about this scene, wrote, then it, is as, then it is as if heaven can no longer contain itself, and the sky erupts. The angels couldn't hold themselves back any longer. I've been using this year an Advent devotional um, that's published by Christian History magazine. It's based on the writings of um, the British writers like C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers and J.R.R. Tolkien and George MacDonald and G.K. I can't get that out. G.K. Chesterton um, and many others. One of the women who wrote uh, one of the entries, Diana Pavlov Glyer, said, God calls forth a group of shepherds, men with calloused hands, men who smell of livestock and open fields. In the midst of so much majesty, what do such ordinary, everyday people as shepherds have to offer? And then she answers her own question with this. Perhaps they brought along a lamb, a blanket, a lantern for the stable, or some food for the weary travelers. We're not told, but we do know this. The shepherds hastened to be present. They hurried to respond to what had been given. They opened their hearts. They stood dumbfounded, witness to the miracle, and then they lingered. The shepherds hastened to be present. They hurried to respond to what had been given. They opened their hearts, they stood dumbfounded, witness to the miracle, then they lingered. Can the same be said of us, that we're hastening to be present with the Lord, that we're hurrying to respond to what we've been given, giving our gifts, that we're opening our hearts, that we're standing dumbfounded, witness to the miracle, blown away, Yet again, that God in his love came to earth to demonstrate this love and to be our savior. That we're lingering, doing more than just checking off our morning devotion box, but lingering with Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. The poor and outcast shepherds, just as they were, no pretense, no cleaning themselves up first, found Jesus and they opened their hearts to him, taking in the message of good news for all the people and then sharing it with all who would listen. The shepherds in Luke's gospel heard the chorus of heavenly praise and God's children have been singing of this joy for every generation since then. And in recent centuries, it's had a tune and words that we sang today. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Isaac Watts um, wrote uh, Joy to the World. He also happened to write what I consider to be my favorite hymn when I survey the wondrous cross. Um, the words to this hymn first appeared in Watts' book, he titled his book, The Psalms of David, Imitated in the Language of the New Testament, written in 1719. And he wrote um, 
he wrote it as two hymns. He, he had them separate. The first was covering Psalm 98, verses 1 to 3, and then the second hymn was covering verses 4 to 9. And the second section, verses 4 to 9, is what forms the words for the popular hymn that we sing today. The first song he called Praise for the Gospel. And these are the words. To our almighty maker God, new honors be addressed. His salvation shines abroad and makes the nations blessed. He spake the word to Abraham first. Truth fulfills the grace. The Gentiles make his name their trust and learn his righteousness. Let the whole earth his love proclaim with all her different tongues and spread the honors of his name in melody and songs. And then he had verses four to nine, the second part, which he calls the Messiah's coming and kingdom. We know the words, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Did you know those words came from the scriptures? Brian, could you put up Psalm 98? I'm just going to read through the psalm quickly together. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. He has done marvelous things. In Jesus, God entered the community of creation so that creation could enter the community of God. In Jesus, God wrapped the gift of his love in flesh. In Jesus, God proclaimed good news of great joy for the whole entire world. In Jesus, God proclaimed good news of great joy for you and for me. Our joy is rooted in the past, in the marvelous things he has done, his incarnation, his life and teachings, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And our joy is rooted in the present, our life in Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And our joy is rooted in the future, as we await Jesus's return. As Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared 
for those who love him. As we celebrate the joy that we have in Christ this morning and the future fullness of joy when he returns, it seems fitting that we would share in communion, confessing our need for a savior, remembering his pain, his sorrow, his sacrifice, and praising the Lord for his gift of salvation, of forgiveness, of wholeness, of life in him, of good news, of great joy. So as we prepare to share in communion together, um, we have packaged elements available for you. If you didn't pick up the bread and the cup as you entered this morning, please just raise your hand and one of our deacons um, will, will bring them to you. The table of the Lord is open for all who believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Psalm 98 said he has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. We welcome you to the table this morning and we come to the table with amazement for such love and such faithfulness. The hand of the star hanger that clutched Mary's finger, the feet of the skywalker that lay in Joseph's palm, the hands and the feet of that baby Jesus were the same hands and feet nailed to the cross for our redemption. So we come to the table with gratitude uh, beyond measure today. Pastor Hank is coming. Um, we'll be serving communion. We'd like to join together uh, first in the responsive reading for communion. Um, this morning's responsive reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 12. We have not come to a mountain that can be touched, burning with fire, or to darkness, gloom, and storm. All right, we'll just read from the screen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses... And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. So we're going to do the one we thought we were doing. Uh, we'll just alternate and just invite you to listen along as we read. We have not come to a mountain that can be touched, burning with fire, or to darkness, gloom, and storm. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. 
Let us worship God with reverence and awe. We worship the Lord with reverence and awe as we share in his supper. On that night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the joy that we see throughout scripture, for the joy that we see throughout creation, for the joy that we see in our lives. Lord, we thank you that though we hold hard things, carry hard things, are covered by hard things, that your joy is true, that your light is more powerful than dark, and that your love carries us through. So Lord Jesus, we now come together at this table that you've invited us to, grateful and thankful that you gave yourself for us, that you were broken so that we can be healed, that you died so that we may live, that you loved so that we can know what love is. So, Lord, we praise you, we glorify you, we thank you, that we can know joy. For the joy that was set before you, you chose to bless us with it. That we can know joy, even in hard things, that we can know joy because you are good, you're faithful, you're true, and you love us. In your name we pray, amen. And now we'll do our responsive reading. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. The same way after the supper, Jesus took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We thank you just as we thanked you for the bread. Lord, we thank you for this cup, this cup that reminds us of the blood that you spilled that was poured out for us. Thank you for the joy that it gives us to be your children, to be forgiven, to be embraced in your family, to walk with you. We pray, Lord, that as we, um, as we partake of the cup, that we will remember that we won't take lightly, um, but that uh, we'll uh, cherish in our hearts this work that you've done for us, God, and the fact that you came just to do this work. We thank you for that today. Amen. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful.
this time we're going to be um, sharing in our closing song together as the worship team comes. We invite you to stand and sing if you would like uh, prayer during this time. Um, you're welcome to come for prayer. You need the microphone. <laughs> um, stand and let's join in our closing. called Every Moment Holy. Um, and for our benediction, I'd like to share a reading um, that's adapted from uh, this book. As we prepare for the Christmas celebration, we would also prepare our hearts for the returning Christ. 
came once for your people, O Lord, you will come again for us. Though there was no room at the inn to receive you upon your first arrival, we would prepare your room here in our hearts, here in our homes, here in our church, Lord Christ. As we wait and as we celebrate, we do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movement into our broken world, O God. Our glittering ornaments and Christmas trees, our festive carols, our sumptuous feasts, by these small tokens we affirm that something amazing has happened in time and space, that God on a particular night in a particular place so many years ago was born to us an infant king, our Prince of Peace. Our wreaths and ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends, these have never been ends in themselves. They are but small ways in which we repeat that sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in the skies near Bethlehem. In view of such great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season? As we decorate our tree and as we feast and laugh and sing together, we are rehearsing our coming joy. We are rehearsing our coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already with open arms received us. We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our homes and here in our church, Lord Christ. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return. O Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon, we miss you so. Amen. <laughs> 